Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by All Lit Up, Canada's independent online bookstore and literary space for readers of emerging, quirky, and acclaimed indie books. All Lit Up is your Canadian connection for award-winning fiction and poetry, author interviews, book roundups, recommendations, and more. The only online retailer dedicated to Canadian literature. All Lit Up features books from 61 literary publishers. All Lit Up makes it easy to discover, buy, and collect exciting contemporary Canadian literature all in one place. What's more, for a limited time, listeners of Between the Covers get 10% off all books on All Lit Up with promo code Between the Covers. Check out All Lit Up at www.alllitup.com. C-A, that's A-L-L-L-I-T-U-P dot C-A. Today's episode is also brought to you by Bianca Stone's What is Otherwise Infinite, a collection of poems which Dorothea Lasky calls legendary, written in four sections with incisive and vivid lyrical language. Stone's poems consider how we find our place in the world through themes of philosophy, religion, environment, myth, and psychology, says Eileen Miles. This is like moral Baroque, and also an invitation to make things. I feel enclosed by something guiding here in these poems, which feels deeply experienced. And it may sound corny, but I think Bianca Stone is raising the possibility that writing poems, or or writing these poems, is an opportunity to give. Does that constitute a philosophy or a craft, she's making that. What is Otherwise Infinite is out on January 18th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. So first off, Happy New Year, everybody. I'm excited to kick off the 2022 season of Between the Covers with a conversation with none other than Victoria Chang about her new book, Dear Memory, which just came out before the turn of the year. This book is unlike any book she has written so far, a book that shows how engaging with similar material, but with entirely different forms, can create very different results. Similarly, Victoria's next collection coming out in the spring is yet again nothing like the one we discussed today. And she reads from this forthcoming collection, The Trees Witness Everything, for the Bonus Audio Archive. Her reading is prefaced by a discussion on writing with constraints, about the constraints that went into creating these poems, formal constraints, visual constraints, and constraints regarding W.S. Merwin. This discussion and reading joins a robust supplementary archive of resources, readings by everyone from Richard Powers, who himself read W.S. Merwin, Garth Greenwell reading Frank Bedart, Natalie Diaz reading Borges, Jory Graham, Robert Creeley, discussions with translators, craft talks, and much more. And this is only one of the potential benefits of starting off the new year by joining the Between the Covers community. Whether that be rare collectibles from past guests, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of the year, months before they're available to the general public. So whether you are a long-time listener or a first-time listener, 
head over to patreon.com slash between the covers and check out all the things people have brought together in the hopes that you become part of what keeps between the covers chugging along in 2022. And now for the first episode of the year with Victoria Chang. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, the poet Victoria Chang, earned her MFA from the Warren Wilson Low Residency Program. But prior to poetry, she pursued a BA in Asian Studies from the University of Michigan, an MA in Asian Studies from Harvard, and an MBA from Stanford's Business School. Victoria Chang is currently a faculty member and program chair of Antioch University's Low Residency MFA program, whose alumni include everyone from Khadija Queen to Daniel Jose Older to Wendy Ortiz. She's the author of a middle-grade novel in verse, Love, Love, and the picture book is Mommy, and she's the editor of the anthology Asian American Poetry, The Next Generation. But she's most known as a poet. Her books include the 2005 collection Circle, winner of the Crab Orchard Review Award Series in Poetry, Salvinia Molesta, The Boss, which won the Penn Center USA Literary Award and a California Book Award, and 2017's collection Barbie Chang. Her poems have appeared in Poetry, The Kenyan Review, The Three Penny Review, and Best American Poetry. She's won a Guggenheim and fellowships from McDowell, the Lannan Foundation, and the Sustainable Arts Foundation. But it's with the publication of Obit, her 2020 poetry collection from Copper Canyon Press, that the world really stood up and took notice. A Best Book of the Year at the New York Times, Time Magazine, Publishers Weekly, the Boston Globe, and NPR long-listed for the National Book Award, a finalist for a National Book Critics Circle Award, and a winner of the Los Angeles Times Poetry Book Prize, the Annisfield Wolf Book Award for a work of poetry that has made an important contribution to our understanding of racism, and the Penn Volcker Award for a work that expands the scope of American poetry. Obit is described by Anna DeForest at BookPost this way. The book, thin with wide margins and heavy as lead, is a collection of losses, a father aphasic after a stroke, a mother's death from pulmonary fibrosis, a collection of poems in the form of dozens of obituaries for parents, for selves, for language. Obit is easily the most apt and soothing work 
soothing like chopping wood, like carrying water or yelling into a well. I have read since before the world upended. Chang's poems provoke a needed catharsis. There is no way around the work of grief. So it is with no exaggeration that there is a lot of anticipation about Victoria Chang's latest book, her first book since Obit, a book that seems in conversation with its predecessor, even as it couldn't be more formally different, a true book of indeterminate genre, a book that is her first venture into prose written in the epistolary form, but a book that continues with new poems as well, poems that become collaged as part of the visual art Victoria creates from the mementos and artifacts that she discovers in her family's storage locker. Victoria Chang is here today to talk about this uncategorizable book of prose and poetry and image text called Dear Memory, Letters of Writing, Silence, and Grief, just out now from Milkweed Editions. Tweed Denfer, NPR says, Resuming the expressively compressed approach of her 2020 obit, the poet's latest work represents a dual articulation of remembrance and creation, as if, quote, each word, a clavicle, a femur, and each sentence, an organ. In defining language as the nucleus for experience, Chang's innovative montage brings to mind Jorge Luis Borges's The Aleph. Like Borges's notion of oneness as embodied by the letter Aleph in the Hebrew alphabet, Dear Memory achieves the holistic concept of Yanman, roundness, completion, arrival, by dispassionately exploring its antithesis, gaps, severance, and departure. In this sense, Chang's lyrical experiment memorably evokes an individual family's time capsule and an artist's timeless yearning to shape carbon dust into incandescent gem. Poet and essayist Kathy Park Hong adds, In Dear Memory, Victoria Chang writes letters to her late parents and mentors, daughters and friends, knitting matrices of intimacy that utterly captivate me in their vulnerable honesty. Her searching speculations act as surrogates for the silences that pock her family history. Her melancholia vibrates beautifully off the page, alongside adjacent racialized affects of envy and shame, resulting in wisdom that seems both freshly discovered and fathoms deep. Ultimately, these letters seem written to me and to you. Welcome to Between the Covers, Victoria Chang. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So after you finished Obit, writing using obituaries as the form and written in the shadow of your grief about your mother dying and all that you've lost of your father from a stroke that affected his frontal lobe, you said you didn't want to write more about it, more about grief, or more about any specific thing at all. But in emptying your mother's storage locker and finding all sorts of letters and photos and mementos, objects that raised all sorts of questions you have for your parents about your family history that you never asked them, that they never spoke freely about, and that you could now never ask them, that has led to the project, or it's one of the things that has led to the project that we're talking about today, Dear Memory, but but reading this book, it feels like it could have just as easily been called Dear 
post-memory. And that's a term I only first encountered when I was in conversation with Brandon Shimoda several years ago about his book, The Grave on the Wall. Um, and I want to read the description of, of the class he taught called About Our Ancestors, The Poetics of Post-Memory. Brandon writes, How do or can we write about individuals, ancestors in particular, whom we never met, but to whom we feel an intense connection? How do or can we write about an event or an experience, a communal or ancestral trauma, for example, that happened prior to our being born and yet about which we feel the intimacy and pressure of a memory? And what are the ethics of doing so? This course will explore the poetics of post-memory, which Marianne Hirsch defines as being connected to the past, not by recall, but by imaginative investment, projection, and creation. We will consider poetry and writing in general as a ritual, memorial, and post-memorial space, as a form of reclamation and realization, and as the site of a potential collaboration with the dead. And you and, and Dear Memory also quote Marianne Hirsch. Um, but even if you hadn't, when I, when I read Shimoda's questions and concerns, the one that are animating his class, I think immediately of your book. Um, so maybe we could start here with post-memory, what hearing Shimoda's words might spark in you about it, and, and how post-memory, if it is, is, is one way we could enter uh, Dear Memory. Wow, what a great class. I uh, would have loved to take that class. <laughs> and you know, the thing I think about knowledge and information is that it's hard to know everything, right? And so each of us is on our own journey toward some understanding of ourselves. And um, you know, there, there are people studying all of these interesting things that we feel and they have been studying these things for so long. And it's hard to, to find all of these things. But um, I had written that entire book and uh, in terms of the dear memory and all the epistolary letters and was fumbling around in a very sort of organic way um, as I typically do, which is fumble around. And then I, you know, occasionally I do what other people do. I mean, I do research and um, I have a great respect for scholars who do research and study all these things that, that we experience. And I stumbled upon this anthology and um, it was all about, and it wasn't just about memory, but it was specifically about migration and memory. And it looked so interesting to me that I just ordered it. And then once I started reading it, it was like someone just slapped me in the face and said, oh my gosh, this is everything that you've been feeling your whole life and everything that you've been fumbling through in dear memory. And I had no words for any of that. And here were all of these interesting artists and scholars who had been thinking about this long before I had, and I suddenly felt a connection. And that's when I wrote that last letter in the book to the reader. And that's when I quoted post-memory. But mm. yeah, it's, it's that kind of awareness, sudden awareness that we can have, um, an, almost an epiphanic moment of understanding of oneself through 
the language or the visual art or the description or anything of other people who um, have been thinking about these things too. Do you know the name of that anthology by chance? I do. Um, so it, the book is called Memory and Migration, and it's an anthology. That's what makes it so interesting to me. And it's edited by Julia Crete, C-R-E-E-T, and Andreas Kitzman, K-I-T-Z-M-A-N-N. And it really, it's such a great book. And, um, you know, it's not just one person writing about post-memory, but it's, you know, there's there's a visual artist, Yvonne Singer, whose parents had left Hungary for Canada during World War II. And she wrote, I was between worlds alienated from the Canadian world of my peers and excluded from the history and culture of my parents who placed a veil of secrecy on the past. You know, when I read that, I was like, wow, that's my whole life right there in that, in those, you know, two lines. There's an epigraph from Brandon's class from Rhea Tajiri that goes, there was this place they knew about. I had never been there, yet I had a memory for it. Um, I'm thinking of this quote and also about the notion of being connected to the past, not by recalling an actual memory, but as Hirsch says, by imaginative investment, projection, and creation. And I was thinking maybe before we go further into this, if we could hear the, the opening letter, uh, Dear Mother. Dear Mother, I have so many questions. What city were you born in? What was your American birthday, your Chinese birthday? What did your mother do? What did your grandmother do? Who was your father, grandfather? It's too late now, but I would like to know. I would like to know why your mother followed Chiang Kai-shek, taking you and your six or seven siblings across China to Taiwan. I would like to know what was said in the planning meeting. I would like to know who was in that meeting, where that meeting took place. I would like to know the people who were left behind. I would like to know if there are other people who look like me. I would like to know if you took a train, if you walked, if you had pockets in your dress, if you wore pants, if your hand was in a fist, if you held a small stone. I would like to know if you thought the trees were black or green at night, if it was cold enough to see your breath, to sting your fingers. I would like to know who you spoke to along the way, if you had some preserved salty plums, which we both love in your pocket. I would like to know if you carried a bag, if you had a book in your bag. I would like to know where you got your food for the trip, why I never knew your mother, father, or your siblings. I would like to have known your father. I would like to know what his voice sounded like, if it was brittle or pale, if it was blue or red. I would like to know the sound he made when he swallowed food. I would like to know if your mother was afraid. During college, I spent several weeks with her in Taiwan. She bought me baozi, buns, every morning, the bao that steamed in small plastic bags with no ties, and sweet doujiang, tofu milk, always too hot for me to drink. She sat there and watched me eat, complained to me about your brother's wife, complained of being sick and how no one would help her. Do you know how long it took me to figure out how to call an ambulance? And then when they came, she refused to go. I still remember how the two men stared at me as if I could move a country. Listen, it's the wind. That's the same wind from your countries. Sometimes if I listen closely at night, I can hear you drop a small bag at the door. I hear the sound of the bow touching the ground and the wind trying to open the bag. But when I open the door, there's nothing there, just the same wind. 
thousands of years old. Happy birthday, wind. Happy birthday, mother. April 6, 1940. I know this now. All the nurses, doctors, and morticians asked me, so I memorized it. Your American birthday. April 6, 1940. I said again and again, as if I had known this my whole life. Been listening to Victoria Chang read from her latest book, Dear Memory. So, so when you were in, in conversation with the poet Rick Barrett, he, he characterized your book in relation to this absence and silence we hear about, not just in this letter you just read, but throughout the collection. He thought the first part of the book was an engagement with silence as, as a problem or obstacle, and that in the later parts of the book, things shift or evolve and, and silence becomes what he described as an active resource, the material within and, and from which we write. Um, and I kind of want to spend time with both aspects of silence, but starting with silence as a problem to be faced. Um, quite clearly, we have the silence of what you don't know about your past because of your mother's death and because of your father's stroke. And we have the silence of what they wouldn't readily share about your family history, perhaps because of the trauma of it um, or because of of the experience they wanted to create or, or protect you from. But we also learned that your mother is very secretive, um, that even though your alma mater is University of Michigan, you never knew and she never mentioned that she once worked for the same university or she would drop you and your your sister off regularly at the public pool, tell you to do 50 laps and then come back in a couple hours and you never knew if this was a mundane thing or she had some secret unspoken about life during those times. But on the level of writing, you also portray silence and the retrieval of memories or post-memories from the silence like a presence, but also a presence that poses an existential threat. For instance, you say, am I willing to write about the dead? Will the language that I make murder me? And finding memories is a bit like free diving, although I've never free dived before. You jump in the water and hold your breath as long as you can without dying and hope you come up with a memory or two. Then there's the problem of opening the memory. And maybe memory doesn't linger and return over again, but is more like a homicide killing all the memories before. And when you write to silence directly in your Dear Silence letters, you speak of circling silence but fearing what lies at its center. So I'm, I'm hoping we could talk about silence in this light, the paradox that the silence you lived in prevented you from knowing things, but also the knowing of things felt like it might put you in, in mortal peril. When I was listening to you talk, I was thinking you were describing what it feels like to be a writer <laughs> and how much we yearn to write and put language and, you know, in incisions on the earth really is what we're doing when we write. And yet when we do so, we avoid, a lot of us do at least, very difficult subject matter, either subconsciously and sometimes very consciously, um, 
because we're afraid of what we might discover, not just about knowledge or facts, but about ourselves. And, and then there's the aspect of sharing the possibility of sharing your work, you know, whether it's in a workshop or with your friend, or if someone finds it. And in, um, in my case, whether I even want the world to read anything about me at all, because I'm actually exceptionally private, which is a strange thing to be, and then yet so honest in my work. Um, and writing, I think, for me, feels like a way to self-discover, but I didn't really imagine that people would actually be reading it. And there, there is the paradox of, of writing for me and the struggle of it. Um, and this book was so hard to put together and I struggled so much with it that I've written this um, before and talked about it and that I actually went to go dig up my contract and see if there was a way I could get out of it. And this was at the 11th hour because I was, it just wasn't working at all. It just, the whole thing. And then all the, all the things that I had written about um, were just really personal. And then I even took out a whole bunch of stuff so that, that maybe like 20 more pages just never made it in. Mm. That's really interesting. And I, I, hopefully the experience of it being out in the, the, the world hasn't confirmed your worst fears about it being out in the world. You know, I think um, I was just worried that it just wasn't working and whatever I had started writing wasn't, it was such an organic process. I didn't really know what I was doing. And, and I feel like, and I've described this book as being uh, kind of like an, a moving x-ray, I guess, you know, you can actually see the book being made if you look closely and if you're a close reader. And depending on, you know, I'm very comfortable as a person with spontaneity and process and play and experimentation and, um, or, you know, just very organic. And I don't feel like all the readers in the world might be that way. And I feel like a lot of readers, you know, they like things like neatly packaged and um, tied the little bow on it. And, and I think that that discomfort of knowing this could be just really messy and that it maybe wasn't even any good at all um, really struck me as being um, problematic. And, and I just, you know, it was, so, it was very close and I decided just to let it go. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about risk in this regard. The idea of moving from from silence as a problem in the first half to silence as a resource in the second half makes me think of something that Mary Rufel has said, describing her own writing practice. And I don't know if this was on the, sh one of the times she was on the show or whether this was in madness rack and honey, but she describes dividing her day half into writing and half into erasing, erasing other people's texts to create erasure texts. So mm -hmm. there's something that feels almost shamanic imagining her, removing words half the day and, and adding words the other half of the day. But you, you yourself also mentioned her in one of your lit hub essays called it begins with silence where Rufel suggests we should write to put language at risk. And, and you quote her saying the torment pain torture of what poetry does to the world, what poets do with words and what words will do to a poet and you thinking about the line, what words will do to a poet, say, can I be the hawk 
and the storm that tries to kill the hawk? Do I want to risk going into you in order to come out with words, to let the words build into something that is no longer me? Am I willing to write about the dead? Will the language that I make murder me? Um, I guess, how do you, how do you see putting language at risk? And by, by extension, putting oneself at risk with language. That's an interesting letter because it started off as a, a letter to a student, um, a particular student actually that I had been working with that semester and really, really brilliant and talented um, woman, young woman, and just with, with the, all the facilities that, that of language, but there is something missing. And I think, I feel like this when I read sometimes is that, uh, and I think I was just talking to someone about this yesterday in that I feel like um, what, I'm, I'm very intrigued by what differentiates a really capable and competent, you know, I always say nearly competent as to add insults to the competence, um, nearly competent writer or merely competent artist or merely competent whatever, you know, from, from the writer that does something that really is special. And we all have the same tools. We all have the same language. And so for me, it's about that language, putting that language at risk and, and really going to me, at least for me in my process, it's really it's really seeing how close you can get to telling the truth, whatever that truth means. Um, and, and I, and I think that's really hard to do. You know, I think it's really hard to be truly vulnerable and to tell the truth yet also making art, you know, I mean, obviously we, we all do that all the time with journals and diaries and um, in our own heads and things like that, but the combination of the two, I feel like is somehow putting language and yourself at risk at the same time. And it sounds really easy, but it's, I think it's really hard because there's something about the alchemy of the two together and that it, 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 it's hard to create, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I think a lot of people including myself, get stuck at the, I'm going to make a poem or I'm going to write an essay. But I don't think that's what we're doing at the end of the day. I and mean, we go to these MFA programs and we learn how to write. I don't think we're learning how to write. I think it's much, much beyond that. Um, and, and figuring out what, how to get there and what that is, 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 the, is the journey of, of living. It's the journey of growing. It's a journey of dying, you know, which is really the same as the journey of living. Right. So. Well, when thinking about self-evaluating, so your, your work isn't out yet and you're looking at the text um, with a different point of view or a different mindset than the, than the you that was writing it in the first place and trying to evaluate whether you've put the language at risk or put yourself at risk. Is that, I would, I would love to hear about that. Is that a, a matter of, of time and, and thus distance through time or trusted readers that you hand it to and then sit with their feedback? Um, how do you yourself re-encounter your writing 
to evaluate it in this regard? I don't evaluate my own writing at all. And I don't, while I listen and obviously hear other people's evaluation of my own writing, I truly don't care what anyone thinks. And I never have. Um, and I think that it's hard to believe as a writer not to care. Um, I, I sometimes will get angry, though, if someone gets it wrong. So <laughs> that's where that's where I do have emotion is that sometimes I'll read a review or something that someone wrote. And I was like, no, 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 that's not right. I that's that you missed the nuance there. Um, or uh, if they criticize me, have at it, but get it right. You know, <laughs> make me think a little more deeply, but don't just get it wrong. And so that's when I get frustrated. But that's not caring about whether someone likes my writing or not. And um, yeah, I was actually talking to someone yesterday about this. Now that I think about it, and we were talking about how scary it is to have a book come out into the world. And I. And I said, you know, I don't actually feel those fears because I loved always the process of making something so much that I'll always have that love for that process more than I'll care about what other people think. Um, and that's why, you know, with the, the um, response that Obit had, it was actually very shattering for me um, as a person. And I, I, you know, went into a pretty deep depression for two years because of that, or it's not been two years, almost two years because of that response is because I never wanted or yearned or thought or imagined that response. You know, for me, it's, it's so much pleasure and joy and challenge in, in writing. That's where my happiness lies. And so, um, you know, having, having suddenly all of this, these eyes on me and my associated with the writing made it, made it very difficult, actually. That's so interesting because that was, that the praise, that the attention and praise led to a, a depression. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, I want to return to one of the blurbs that I read from Tui Din uh, for NPR, because I think it might serve as an interesting hinge between silence's absence or silence's threat on the one hand and silence's resource on the other. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. Um, so when, when she said that dear memory achieves the holistic concept of Yan Man, roundness, completion, arrival, by dispassionately exploring its antitheses, gaps, severance, and departure. I'm not familiar with Yan Man, uh, up beyond this blurb, and I don't know if I'm saying it right, but the subtext for me around this is that perhaps one creates a sense of self, one creates the sense of oneself as a self within and through the silence, that, that silence, severance, departure are the active resources, to use Rick Barrett's words, from which to forge selfhood. Um, it made me think of my recent conversation with Rosemary Waldrop, where her whole poetics is created around this notion, something that she calls gap gardening, that it's in the gap between words that the creation occurs and resides, even that death, not life, is the source of the creative impulse. Or even Hirsch's de definition of post-memory as being connected to the past via imaginative investment, projection, and creation particularly the word creation, that post-memory is perhaps generative in a weird way out of the, the absence. 
um, but but speak to us about this. Does this ring true? Um, this this blurb or this notion that you would find roundness, completion, arrival, perhaps as a self through through the exploration of its opposite. Absolutely, I think as sort of as a as an immigrant's child, and also you know an Asian American woman that grew up in the Midwest. Um, I feel like I've spent my entire life trying to fill things in and, and I've been made, and I'm very clear about how I phrase this to feel less than I don't feel less than I'm very proud to be who I am. And I always have been, but I've been made to feel less than um, all my life. And so you feel as if you're an empty container and you're just are, are needing to fill it in and to complete it because you're always not whole. Um, And it took me a long time to realize that wholeness is not something useful to chase after. And I have all of these resources, to use Rick's words, um, in in silence. Silence is a resource itself. And, and And because of that silence, I think I became a writer or a creative person, you know, an artist. And so, Without, without that kind of um, absence, I think I would be like a lot of the people walking around that always seem so damn happy and so fulfilled. And they really are. I occasionally ask people, are you, are you ever sad? You know, or are you, do you, are you content? Do you ever know? And they, they're like, yeah. Sure. I mean, even some writers I know, I've asked some writers who seem particularly um, happy. And I'm like, Do you, how can you be a writer and be like that? And they're like, yeah, no, I feel happy. And that just just shocks me, you know, and, and shocks me too. It doesn't it? Yeah. It I mean, does. I think the artists, writers and creative types are always um, in this sort of existential fraught relationship with everything. And um, you know, even, even something like success, right? And um, I think no matter what it is, we're always kind of scratching at the wall of whatever that is and trying to rub it out. And, and so, yes, I think that it took me a whole lifetime to realize that I have a lot of resources and inner resources and outer resources. And maybe, maybe these are all the, it had to be this way you know, um, instead of trying so hard to, to, to fill myself in. And that was also writing about some of my early childhood experiences too. Um, you know, I've been in so many environments and cultures where I've had to perform a certain perfection or a certain persona and writing those things sort of debunked all of those things that I've been fake stories and narratives that I've been telling everyone for my whole life. And actually an Asian American friend who met me when I was 18, I saw him recently said, yeah, when I first met you, I thought you appeared, you know, ostensibly superficially like all the other Asian American women that I knew or that I am friends with. But then shortly after you opened your mouth, I realized you were nothing like them. And he said that recently, I mean, this was eight when I was 18. And I thought about that. I was like, yeah, there's something about writers, artists, musicians, we're different. You know, I think we don't, 
I think in general, and it's not just me and my family in silence, it's, it's all of us. I think we all navigate um, within the world of silence and, with the, and within the world of this kind of desire to make something out of that gap, those gaps that Mary, uh, Rosemary Waldrop was talking about and the in-betweenness of things is where we, many of us reside and like to reside and um, create in, within those spaces. Well, I, I want to spend a good amount of time connecting questions of form with or in relationship to identity, like you're bringing up around seeing your friend again um, and the way they reflected things back to you and around the construction of self. But I think as a preface to some of my my future questions, I was hoping we could hear a, um, a poem from Obit, not only because it... Um, is a different form. So moving from the letter to the obituary, but also because there's a sense of um, form as content within this as well. Um, and I was thinking of obituary to the clock, which is on uh, 82, I think. The clock died on June 24th, 2009, and it was untimely. How many times my father has failed the clock test? Once I heard a scientist with Alzheimer's on the radio trying to figure out why he could no longer draw a clock. It had to do with the superposition of three types. The hours represented by one to 12, the minutes where one no longer represents one but five and a two now represents 10, then the second hand that measures one to 60. I sat at the stoplight and thought of the clock, its perfect circle and its superpositions all the layers of complication on a plane of thought, yet the healthy read the clock in one single instant without a second thought. I think about my father and his lack of first thoughts, how every thought is a second or third or fourth thought, unable to locate the first most important thought. I wonder about the man on the radio and how far his brain has degenerated since. Marvel at how far our brains allow language to wander without looking back, but knowing where the pier is. If you unfold an origami swan and flatten the paper, is the paper sad because it has seen the shape of the swan or does it aspire toward flatness, a life without creases? My father is the paper. He remembers the swan, but can't name it. He no longer knows the paper swan represents an animal swan. His brain is the water the animal swan once swam in, holds everything but when thawed, all the fish disappear. Most of the words we say have something to do with fish. And when they're gone, they're gone. I've been listening to Victoria Chang read from her 2020 collection from Copper Canyon Press, Obit. At one point in the book, you say, an elegy reflects on the loss of a loved one. What form can express the loss of something you never knew but new existed. Lands you never knew, people, can one experience such a loss? The last definition of absence is the non-existence or lack of. See how the of hangs there, like someone about to jump off a balcony? And I, I wonder if this is a more beautiful way of saying that because we're talking about post-memory and not memory, about the loss of something one never knew, that elegy isn't the right form. 
So I was hoping maybe you could talk to us about elegy, but also in relationship to the to these two other forms of public address, the epistolary form and the obituary form um, that you've chosen instead to um, explore this material. Yeah. I mean, I think I tried, and this goes early on to what you're saying before about not really wanting to write another book or stuff. I mean, you know, you don't really write a book, um, at least I don't, um, about my mother or her passing or her illness or my father's stroke, which I started writing about way back in The Boss, which is my third book. And, um, you know, he's still alive, too. That's the, the, the thing of it, too, is why I still write about him. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that for me, form is so important for so many reasons. But in this particular case, I feel like, I mean, I think I tr really tried avoiding writing those um, any allergies at all for my mother. I, I just, I just had not I actually actively refused to, to do so because I just didn't feel like I could do any better. And I've said this before, you know, than the Walt Whitman's of the world. And I mean, they've all done it better than me and I couldn't do what they're doing any better than they have already done. I mean, it's such an old form and it has a, such a long tradition. Um, and yeah, I mean, contemporary poets, I think of like Brenda Hillman wrote this great book, Death Track Dates, which I really enjoyed. And Mary Jo Bang wrote a book, Elegy, that I thought was also very, very good. And um, and then there are all the individual poems and all these other books. So there's no need, to, you know, for me to go in there. And um, but yeah, it wasn't until I was listening to NPR and they were talking about this documentary, Obit, and their, the, the documentary, which I never watched, was about obituary writers. It sounded fascinating. And um, yeah, you know how ideas come, which is like, for me, they come all the time. It's like, it's like rapid fire, you know, this idea, that idea. It's like all sorts of things. But that one's sort of stuck. And I went home and I wrote 70 of these little obituaries over a two-week period. And so for me, in retrospect, and I've heard a lot of other people talk about this too, but in retrospect, I actually think that it wasn't that I wasn't wanting to write about my mother's death or my experiences through that, but it was that I didn't, I couldn't find a way in and I couldn't find a way to do that. And, um, and for me, oftentimes um, finding a way into it is like a writing prompt. And uh I have a lot of natural resistance and also the resistance of time. I don't have time. And so you don't have a choice. You just can't write anyway, um, which is a great reason not to write. Uh, it, you, you know, you have excuses. And, and so um, these little triggers, which are like these uh, artificial or organic writing prompts that suddenly appear are actually a way to get me to sit down and start writing. And I think the, the epistolary form, I never said, I never thought I am going to sit down and I'm going to write an epistolary. I just thought I'm going to talk to my dead mother. And the, the only way in which to do so um, besides verbal is to, to write it down. And, and the only way to do that is say, dear mother, comma. And then there you go. Well, 
Brandon Shimoda described his class um, saying that he had 15 students, all of whom were writing to and alongside their ancestors, like you just described. And one of the assignments was to generate 30 to 50 questions that they want to ask directly of their ancestors. And they shared them going around the table, each person speaking one question at a time, round and round, until, quote, it felt like the table was spinning, buoyed by the energy of each question and the accumulation of all the questions. And, and when I think of your book, it feels like you two are conjuring spirits in this way. Um, it is your voice, but because you're using the epistolary form, you're addressing people who aren't there and conjuring them from their absence or in their absence, whether it be letters to your mother, your grandmother, your daughters, your sister, your teachers. But I wanted to ask you about writing to your bullies mm-hmm. and more generally about form in relation to self-expression or self-investigation. You, you grew up in a largely white and Jewish neighborhood and were bullied throughout your childhood based on your physical appearance, or at least partially based on your physical appearance as a Chinese, Taiwanese, American girl. Um, in the book you say, I didn't know what was happening at the time, but I see it now. The language of poetry reminded me to stay alive. It reminded me that when it felt like I had nothing, I was nothing. I still had words. I could ride language as if on horseback, and it could take me anywhere, including more deeply into myself. And you've also said more provocatively, I don't know if I would be a writer if I were not bullied. In a very odd sense, I feel immensely grateful to those that bullied me, which again reminds me of finding wholeness and arrival through severance and departure. But talk to us about becoming a writer partially because of your often racist bullies. I think by nature, um, you know, I, I think before we started, I was telling you how I'm actually, you know, just really uh, a loud, um, uh, chatty and um, constantly making jokes kind of person and uh, full of mischief. And, um, and I think that, the, you know, that between the, 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 the bullies and then also growing up in the kind of family that I grew up in. Um, and I had to take uh, a letter out that was about my sister because I was afraid that she was going to get mad at me. Um, and she already has gotten mad at me about another thing that I wrote. Um, but, you know, because of um, one of her, you know, because of her sort of secret illness, there was just a lot of tension in the house growing up. And and then combined with all of these things that were happening in my childhood, just constantly, I felt like I was, I, I, I felt like I was constantly being picked at and, uh, and constantly being um, verbally assaulted actually by some of these kids who were just kids, you know, but um, it just sort of, it kind of took all those wonderful spikes that we all have in our personality, just shaved them all down. And um all the way down until there's nothing but maybe little specks of dust left. And that, that was my baseline, I think. Um, and, and there's just a lot of confusion as a child, not understanding why things were the way they were. Um, 
And that was hard to write about because again, you know, I had, I, I'm really good at performing happiness and performing perfection and performing X, Y, or Z. You know, it's like I went to business school. I mean, 99% of the women that I went to business school are like these perfect women, you know, and, and they are, I mean, they really are. And these perfect men and perfect, you know, um, non-binary folks, et cetera, you know, it just, they were just perfect in all ways. And um, I was this whole time performing that perfection. And so uh, to write that letter was kind of, it's, it's shameful. It was shameful and embarrassing to me, but I kept it in there because I felt it was important to keep in there. Um, and it was an important part of the story that I was telling or trying to tell. You, you mentioned the ways your, your personality was, was shaved down to this minimal baseline from someone who is maybe more naturally an extrovert, but, but talk to us about, I know this is a qualified and provocative statement, but the feeling grateful as a writer for having been bullied, um, it, it, what, what about it inadvertently is, has, has been a resource rather than, a uh, something you withstood. Yeah. I mean, I look around and, and I think it'd be really boring to be anything else, you know? Um, and I don't, I don't think I mean, if I, if I had grown up, like, I, I mean, I, I mean, I have just a, a handful of writer friends who are like, you know, had really functional childhoods, <laughs> but we all sometimes talk about how we had so much, we have one thing in common, there's trauma, you know, whether it's family trauma or something, there's trauma there somehow. Um, but I just think that it's so much more interesting to be who I am because of the experiences that I had gone through. And instead of viewing those experiences as shame, I now view them as a, a resource, you know, as, um, and, and I feel even bad using that word, but I love how that word sounds, which is really mostly why I'm using it. And um, that I think that if we, if we just take what we have and try and make something from that detritus, I think it, it can be really interesting depending on what we have. And I think what I have is not shameful. It's really interesting and I can't change it. I can't go back. I can't um, you know, tell those people now to stop. And even if I did confront those people now, I don't think it would change the past. And so I might as well use the, the little, you know, small pieces of dust I have and try and make something um, interesting with it, make something a piece of art that, that someone else can look at and view and maybe feel something out of my detritus. And that feels like it's somewhat useful. Otherwise it's like sitting with my trauma and not doing with it feels awful sad to me, whereas I feel grateful, I do, that my life experiences have been the way they have been, because what's the alternative? Right. Yeah, there is none. Well, um, I'm hoping you'll read another excerpt from Dear Memory, and I was thinking of part of a letter that is about uh, your parents' Chinese restaurant, the, the Dragon Inn. I remember how crowded Dragon Inn was on Sundays when we had an all-you-can-eat brunch for $4.99. The line went out the door and everything was frenzied and nameless. The waitresses setting up, you lighting the little blue flames below the buffet containers, the chef 
shoveling fried rice into large metal containers, father seating the customers who rushed in. We offered fried rice, egg rolls, fried noodles, and maybe sweet and sour pork. I don't remember all the food, but people came from all over town, whatever town we were in. One day the brunch disappeared. I never asked why, but I imagine customers ate too much or it was too much work. These are the kinds of questions that absolutely did not matter at the time. The things that didn't matter at the time are often the most urgent questions after someone has died. After the brunch disappeared, I remember the quiet restaurant with a handful of customers who came in occasionally for egg foo young or mushu pork, none of the foods we ate. I remember our secret menu, the one just for Chinese people. This makes me think about how we perpetuate our own stereotypes, our own vanishing. Resolve isn't inactive though. Resolve is a live animal. We perpetuate the narrative that is given to us in order to survive. I didn't even know until recently that we opened restaurants because of labor restrictions placed on Chinese immigrants in the 19th century. So much of our identity is based on how others expect us to be, how others want us to behave, to dress, to talk, how others perceive Chinese food, all the expectations all the way down to the font. The alternative is to change the font and go out of business. Once a photographer asked me if I had a Mao outfit that I could wear for the magazine's shoot. I didn't even know what a Mao outfit was, if there was even such a thing. I'm not sure what I said or did, but I'm sure I didn't protest. Can you wear all black then, he asked. I thought about it, sure, because I thought a Chinese person should either say nothing or say yes. Once the brunch disappeared, I spent my Sundays going back and forth to the liquor store next door. I remember having the urge to slip a small chunky chocolate square into my pocket without the owners noticing. I was so bored that I even missed the white people who lined up not to see us, who lined up to eat us alive. Been listening to Victoria Chang read from her latest book, Dear Memory, from Milkweed Editions. Before we talk about this, some of the specifics of what you just read, I, I wanted to connect form and identity or see if there was a, a connection between the two for you in this way. You've talked before how it wasn't until your third collection, The Boss, that you began engaging with questions of identity in relation to power. But at that point, it was mainly hierarchies, but not explicitly questions of race. But since then, it feels like you've increasingly done so. As we move from Barbie Chang to Obit to Dear Memory, with Dear Memory most fully going into anti-Asian racism and questions of identity and assimilation. But if we look at the progression book to book, your books have also progressively moved toward prose in that sequence of three books, with Obit leaving behind line breaks for prose poetry and Dear Memory's main text becoming full-on prose. And I wondered if the change in form is foregrounding a different part of you if moving toward prose also unlocks story in a different way, or if these parallel tracks of form and content are just coincidentally in tandem in this case. If this increasing interest of, of putting your own experiences with racism on the page, if those would still happen even if you were writing these books as sonnets or haikus, or if something about moving into more and more into sentences is also unlocking um, these stories. 
I think you're right. You know, I think that's a very um, smart thing to notice. And I think that I've tried to write about race or those kinds of things in small little bits, little concisions, right? Little concise kind of um, moments. And there was one sort of really racist moment that I experienced at a writer's conference that I wrote in a little tiny tanka in Obit. And then it kind of blew out and grew into itself when I gave it more physical space and gave it more sort of complete sentences and less fragmented um, space. And I think I think that's what I think that's what writers do a lot. And I actually tell my students to do this too, is that if you are feeling like the itch to approach a, a material and you try it in, in this way, and you feel like it doesn't really, it's not working for some reason. Well, give yourself some time and try it in another way. It could be a different genre. I mean, genres are all human formed. I say that all the time too. There's no such thing as genre, um, but try different forms because sometimes the subject matter has to find its form to really find itself. And uh, yeah, I've written about sort of the same stories, but in different ways and each time it's angled slightly different through the, a different kind of prism, a different crystal or this other side of it. And each time it, it, it shines in its own miraculous way. Um, but I think this material really needed something bigger and more physical space for me to truly explore it because it's very nuanced, you know? And I think that you can't just say, oh, this, this is racist or this happened. It's, it's just... I wanted to do more exploration and obviously I'm not an Asian American studies scholar. I'm not, you know, it's like I, but, but I, I really wanted to, to do the reading and do the research and to think a little bit harder about nuance and, and build upon some of the things that other people have been working on for a long time and to, to respect that, that knowledge and that research and the thinking that all of these scholars have been doing since I was born and before my time, largely anonymous. Um, and, and, to not, and to not give it that space that I've given it, which is this kind of prose space, I felt like would be disrespecting the material, but also um, limiting it, but also disrespecting all of the people who had been doing all this work before me. Mm. Well, thinking about ways, the ways that you're continually shifting from book to book, writing in lines, writing prose poems, writing epistolary essays, writing image text, writing in syllabics, writing tonkas, writing poems that all contain the titles of W.S. Merwin poems. I want to ask you another question about form and identity, thinking about this history of yours, um, a restlessness around form, perhaps. One of the things you say, for instance, is that bullying turned you from a naturally extroverted person into an introvert and that as a result the tension between inward and outward is important in your work and then in the lit hub essay you say because i was trained to assimilate at a young age i think i can be anything anyone wants me to be meaning that i am keenly aware of how other people feel or what other people want and then in dear memory you say Saying things others want to hear is easy for an immigrant's child because for an immigrant's child, language is theater. We are always performing. 
and when I read this and think about your work in relation to, in relation to this, I also think of my history of being bullied, whereas you were bullied as an Asian girl in a white and Jewish neighborhood. I, I was bullied as a Jew among almost entirely non-Jews. And my strategy for survival was never to center myself, to instead make friends by centering them, by becoming a good listener, or as you say, being keenly aware of how other people feel or what they want. And much of my life has sort of shaped itself in this way. My previous work for two decades in healthcare, listening to others and interviewing them about what was going wrong for them, and now also with the podcast, interviewing writers. On the downside, I think the reason I became a writer so late in my life is because for so long I would avoid self-expression or being on the stage because of the fear of being ridiculed or mocked if I'm, if I'm standing in the center. But while writing itself, I think, became for me the remedy for the fear of writing or, or um, self-expression was ultimately its own remedy, the more I, I, I wrote, uh, the, more, the less that became a problem um, or the more I worked through that fear. I've also found that I found a way to find self-expression through interviewing. So through this form that I've inherited through trauma, where I'm not just listening, but you know the way I'm asking a question or how I'm listening feels authentically like something that is both other-centric and yet not self-erasure. Um, and this is my long way of asking if the way you are a shapeshifter formally, if, if something s- similar is going on for you, if the way you could be anything anyone wanted you to be, which I'm sure has all sorts of uh, downside legacy for you, has also become the many different ways you could be that are also you, that are also the way you yourself want to be on the page and off the page. There's so much there. Oh my goodness. Um, Thank you, first of all, for sharing that with me. And um, while you were speaking, I felt this sort of kinship with you in in many ways. And um, and when you were talking and sort of working through that, and I was thinking, well, there you go. This is here you are doing this incredible podcast that's become so beloved amongst writers. I regularly hear people saying it's like the podcast that writers, you know, or, or people who are interested in writing should listen to. Um, you've become quite good at this thing where you ask questions to other people, but I like how you have thought about it as, well, it's also a form of identity making because you're not really just asking questions about the work without an investment of yourself. You're working through your own questions of identity and selfhood through the literature and through the process of asking questions. Um, but I just I just identified with you so much because I um, I do the same thing sort of socially and which is why I think the 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 reception of Obit was so difficult for me because I actually prefer to do what you're doing, 
And I think it's so much easier and more interesting to me as someone who learned how to, to, to make myself small, to avoid attention, um, to, to, to be the one that's querying and asking questions. It's a sense of power, it's a sense of control. Um, it's also a way to deflect and not be vulnerable. And I remember many times in my adult life where I would just ask people really interesting questions. Like I'm, you know, I'm sure you're good at this too. You, you find the heart, you know, and, and you'll find this to be interesting before I um, quit my other jobs. I was basically writing um, for business schools in other places uh, and like articles, case studies, a lot of writing, which required me to interview people my whole life. So I, I've interviewed over a thousand people. I counted at some point and they're all CEOs, they're senior managers, nonprofits, for-profits. I've interviewed some really, really, really famous people. Mm-hmm. And I only had in some cases, 30 minutes at most an hour, you know, I had to you know, interview the head of Universal, you know, NBC Universal, or, I mean, these are major, major um, organizations. And um, yeah, you only have so much time. So you have to find that the center, the thing that's going to make them say something and get to the heart of what is keeping them up at that particular moment, or something that's impacted them from the past. And and I became really good at that, so good at that. I started doing that socially. And then when someone flipped it around and realized that what I was doing, they would ask me a really tough question. I would feel this flush across my face and I immediately felt really hot because I the, suddenly someone had done that tricky thing of turning the camera on me and then I immediately turned it back to them. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, and, and I did that for my whole life. And I still do that now, you know, it's like, it's really easy. I'm sure you, you know, this to get people to sit there and just talk about themselves for hours and hours. And then, <laughs> um, and then, and then it's like, you've somehow made them feel really great. I mean, it's like a therapy session in some ways, if you can find those nuggets. And so when you're talking, I was like, Oh, wow. I totally identify with wow. this personality. It's, just, <laughs> it's, you know, and, and then you choose things to do um, in your career path and things like that. And, and it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. It's like my mother used to say, someone has to bake bread, meaning someone has to be the, the, the interviewer. Someone has to be the interviewee. Like one cannot exist without the other. And, um, that's true with everything. And so, yeah, I, I just found, I found that to be really interesting. Um, and now I've totally forgotten your question, but you were talking well, about this idea about form, yeah, form. and shape-shifting because, mm-hmm. uh, because your forms keep changing. Each book is, is very different formally. I mean, we can recognize yeah. voice across voice and concerns across mm-hmm. books. Um, but just the way you've, I, I, when I was saying, um, when, when I was quoting you as saying that you could be anything for anyone, which, which I imagine has a painful legacy. Um, mm-hmm. but it also feels like you flipped it, flipped the script on that <laughs> in terms of you can be yourself now in many different ways. Yeah. I think it's like what you're saying about how, when you interview people, you've figured out that 
it's also a way to sort of make yourself and to learn about yourself. I feel like I'm a total shape shifter. I can be anything that anyone wants me to be and I can identify immediately what that that is necessary in a particular situation that I'm in. And thus, I think in general, I've always been very quote unquote likable, right? And people always like me. And it's because I, I'm who they want to, me to be at that particular moment or who they need me to be at that particular moment. I always have a ton of friends around me. Um, I'm very social and um, in, enjoy those instances. And I think it can, it can definitely take its toll, but I think, um, you know, what they always say is your, your greatest sort of thing is your other weakness or strength or whatever. Um, and that's when I'm really terrible at these male proposals because my parents didn't speak English at home. Um, but th there's a, there is that great saying. And I think that where I've learned that anything can be also a benefit is that I'm also really good at, at listening to what a particular work wants it to be. And so I'm very good at understanding, um, uh, the writing in a way that I might understand a person. And people always ask this question, you know, do you think about the audience? You know, that because not consciously, but be because I'm the kind of person that I am, the shape shifter, very much so probably like yourself, is that I'm exceptionally good at understanding, um, you know, other people around me all the time. And so that comes in the revision process. You know, I think, I think about how things may be received and, and it's not that I care or that I'll change things, but I have an awareness about those things. I think naturally, um, probably, probably too much so because I'm, I'm such a shapeshifter. And I think the formal, <clears throat> the formal adjustments too are sort of this, um, not having one static identity. I mean, who really does? But I think there are different ranges of that. And I certainly feel like I'm kind of a little all over the place. You know, I always say I could have been a filmmaker. I could have been a visual artist. I could have been, uh, you know, a CEO. I could have been, I mean, I could do so many. I could have been a chef. I could have done anything. Like I'm literally unmoored, you know, there's no... I feel like I could do anything. I could be anyone, um, and that, and I, and there are about a, a thousand thoughts that go through my head in ten minutes, you know, about everything, and it's rapid, and um, and that's, you know, I think that's where the shape shifting and the form comes about too. Is that I, I get bored so easily, <laughs> and that I'm always wanting to try new things, and things just feel so dull to me, and and just to keep myself feeling alive is is why I like to try new things whether they succeed or not or the degree in which they do so it doesn't matter to me because I I think that's what actually keeps me alive is that sort of um shape-shifting that you mentioned yeah well I want to take this these notions of inside outside public private introvert extrovert in your work back to this question of silence but there's a different notion of silence that you also explore in the book than the the um, two types that Rick Barrett is, is talking about, and that's the the silence as as self erasure or or silence, and then feeling compromised because one was silent um, afterwards. Um, so back to this question we discussed earlier, if if going into the the silence 
that might kill you, um, that puts you in peril. It makes me it makes me wonder if if this has to do with questions of both shame and assimilation in relation to silence. You you bring up shame a lot in both your conversations around the book and within the book. Um, I'm thinking of long ago now with Rachel Zucker on Commonplace podcast. You you talked about how saving face is a big part of Chinese American culture and that it was a big part of regular conversations in your family and that you were always dealing with masks and the desire to, as you've discussed today, present the most professional face. Um, and more recently, you've talked about how your desire to be overeducated was part of your assimilation, uh, of your belief that if you got all of these degrees, then you would be taken seriously because of them. And, prob- and the subtext being that you wouldn't be if you didn't get them. And I wonder if the part of Dear Memory where you discover your dad's perfect attendance awards at the Ford factory where he worked, I wonder if his drive to never miss a day, if that came from a similar place as this impulse for overeducation. Mm-hmm. But, but either way, I, I think about the ways in, in the book you, you try to be still silent and invisible as a survival strategy, but then are left with shame. And this shame itself feels really complicated to me. On the one hand, there are scenes from when you're younger where one line goes, I, I turn my head away from Asian people on the street. If I don't look at them, I won't have to see myself. Or the way you avoided jade or the color red, it, which seems to be a shame from being seen as Asian from not being able to disappear. But then there are scenes in the book where you experience anti-Asian micro or macro aggressions and don't speak up and then feel the shame for not speaking out. And this feels like it lies sort of at the nexus of silence and identity and shame that the shame of both being too visible and for not being visible enough mm-hmm. when it when the context demands it but t- talk to us about shame in this in this relation in in regard to all of this yeah i mean listening to you talk about it i think wow that sounds so exhausting and that's exactly how people like me probably feel it's exhausting to have to navigate all of these things on a daily basis in micro ways and macro ways and it's been exhausting and um and yeah i mean i think it's it's complicated and i think each like you were saying each context demands a different relationship with shame (laughs) and so at the end of the day can one say i feel i mean i know i said that i don't feel shame for being Chinese American. It's true that I can say a hundred percent. I never, I wasn't born. No one is born feeling ashamed, which is really kind of a, a really crazy thing to think about. Um, I, I, and it shows you that a life, a life and the environment in which you're in, that's how those things are created. It's interaction. The odd thing is we're such social creatures. We need each other, yet we kill each other. We need each other, yet we harm each other. It makes no sense, you know, at all. Um, and, and we need each other, yet we shame each other, right? Um, 
and and so it is complicated but i i do know again is that i i didn't i wasn't born feeling shame and i look at you know it's like we're sitting on zoom and i'm looking at my own face and your face and i feel no shame i'm quite proud of the way that i look um and I'm happy, you know, having black hair and all those things. I never really spent a lot of think, time thinking about it. But then, then, you know, there are all these different contexts in which you, you are forced to think about shame and the shame is sort of thrust upon you. And the, 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 so it's the emotion in a, in a sort of um, situational it's, so it's such an, it's like, I guess my relationship with shame is it's situational versus systemic. And um, yet the racism is systemic. So maybe using systemic and to confuse it with, in this context might confuse other people. But I, I do think that uh, I wanted to write into those complexities and, and not think too much about it. So, so something that I do is like, I, I walk and then I can't remember like, what happened behind me. And so um, when you're, when even just reading it about like these passages or thinking about this again, I, I don't actually remember, I don't remember it that well. And, um, and I, and when you're talking about, it, I also think how interesting in that the, because of the, the not looking back as much um, while writing and not self-revising or not thinking too much about the process, you know, not thinking about it, but living in the process, what happens is that you collect and um, basically collect nuance or write into that nuance. And you could, you could basically, uh, you know, counter what you just said in the last paragraph and not even know it as much or care. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I ended up doing in this, in this book. And that the result is that is it, it probably does paint a more complex picture. And you picked up on some of that because the situations um, led to different kinds of feelings of shame. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I had to reconcile those situations and, and my feelings about, you know, I, I was always told to assimilate, you know, it's like, I grew up in Michigan, we didn't have a choice, really. And, um, and so, but, you know, we, we did, I, I do remember, like, there, there's subversive kind of uh, anti-assimilation happening all the time. It's just that there's that, to go back to what you're saying, the public assimilation and the private celebration. And, you know, it's like with the food we ate, the way we, we spoke Chinese in the house, my mother, uh, my Chinese is as strong as it is because she spoke only Chinese in the house. Um, all, all growing up, actually, um, until the day she died, it was mostly Chinese. And, um, and my dad, who was more assimilate, um, more assimilating, I guess, um, spoke English, Chinglish kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we went to Chinese school every Saturday. They taught us how to write calligraphy, which I loved, and which is actually some stuff I'm doing now with a new manuscript I'm working on with some visual art and stuff. Very much stems from what I learned when I was a child. And, um, you know, we were doing plays and sword dancing. My mother... Um, noticed that we, my sister and I had a facility for music, my sister more than me. I had more of a facility for visual art, I think is what she noticed in writing. Um, but, you know, she had me learning how to play the moon guitar. So she had me take lessons um, with uh, a Chinese opera musician from China who had been studying in America and they all became really close friends. And 
I, I grew up learning how to play the moon guitar, which is literally what it looks like. It's a round moon and um, I can still play it to this day and still have it with me. It's like survived like 30 moves kind of thing. Um, so we were subversively focusing on our culture and all those things, but, um, and, I, and I look back at that with a lot of happiness and pride, you know, um, but, but, you know, it's, 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 it's that really, it's, it's fear. And I write about this in the book. This is like the trouble with racism is that you really do. It's like the minute the inside is great. The minute you open that door and you walk out is anxiety. You yeah. know, it's like, you just never know. And I mean, even to this day, I could go walk into an elevator at this hotel that I'm at and I feel fear. I just don't know what someone's going to think, what they're going to say, what they're going to do um, all the time, all day long. 24 hours a day it's other people's perception of you and how that manifests itself verbally physically mm. um yeah and and that's why that event that happened at the writers conference was so traumatic because you could you could have all these degrees and work so hard and you know do all these things and yet some you know white woman could just come up to you and lecture you in public in the way that she did without thinking twice about it you know you don't it just that's that's the kind of stuff that I think makes racism so difficult. I should just mention for people who don't know what you're referencing, it is something that gets described in the book. This incident that happens at the writers' conference. Um, I, I I want to spend some time with the visual art collage and poetry in the book, but I do want to ask a final question first about Asian American identity in relation to post memory, because in looking up Marianne Hirsch who you quote and Brendan Shimoda quote about post-memory, I learned that this term came out of Holocaust studies and that Hirsch first used it maybe 30 years ago in reference to Art Spiegelman's graphic novel Mouse and has since made it more complicated and, and developed it over time. And when you were talking with Dana Levin, she could very much relate to your discussion of post-memory for her own Jewish family the gauze that was cast across the past with nothing that one could grasp onto beyond a certain point. Um, and I can relate to it with my own ancestry, the sort the quite an absence that, um, and things spoken to in really uh, unsatisfyingly uh, general terms in the own, in my own family story. But I also realized that almost all the times that I encounter post-memory by chance, just moving through my life. It's in an Asian American context. Um, I think of Teresa Hakyung Cha's dictate with lines like, to extract each fragment by each fragment from the word, from the image, another word, another image, the reply that will not repeat history in oblivion, or Don Miche and DMZ Colony, who engages with post-memory Han, a phenomenon that combines the notion of post-memory, in this case, second-generation Korean immigrants being haunted by historical traumas they didn't experience directly, with this Korean notion of Han, which I talk about with EJ Ko. I know we were talking about EJ Ko before the show today, but we talked a lot about Han when when we were in conversation, which is a hard to describe um, concept in English, but some have, have tried to describe as 
collective yet indeterminate grief. And, and Dami Chase has lines like, memory's memory, memory's child. My memory lives inside my father's camera, the site where my memory was born. And lastly, I think of the poet Jane Wong, who wrote a thesis on the poetics of haunting for Asian American poets. And she asks, how can haunting and moving toward the ghost be productive, not a burden? And I guess this is my long way of asking, do you think there's something unique about the Asian American experience or some subset of it? So I don't want to generalize about it. And as if there were an Asian American experience that makes this connection to post-memory poetics um, so foregrounded. I mean, it's also very possible I'm just encountering all of these things by by chance. And mm-hmm. perhaps the Arab American community and the Latin Latinx community have this very same engagement. I, that is, mm-hmm. I, I acknowledge that's possible. But I'm I'm curious because. That's what I'm encountering randomly as I move through the world. Thank you for all those lovely quotes. I actually remember Don Nietzsche. That was one of my favorite lines in that book. And when you read it again, I said, I remember that line. And 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 I think, I mean, it's hard to say, but I think you may be onto something. It could be, um, it could be sort of the relationship we have to, to silence, which is what I write a lot about in, in this particular book and communication and um, the cultures of, of communication. And I do um, obviously have a lot of different kinds of friends and their family cultures, right? So some family, sometimes I'll meet in, uh, like a Chinese American person or a Taiwanese American person and they'll be like, oh yeah, my parents were like, like diary of the mouth, they told me everything. It's very rare though. <laughs> um, and so I, but that'll surprise me because I think that a lot of us grew up in families that didn't really say much. And um, and I think that's true with a lot of families, but then you know, having grown up in a, in a predominantly Jewish community, um, that seemed different for some of my Jewish friends. Um, like my my roommate in college was a friend from high school and and she used to always comment about how her mother was like she knew everything her mother's like is it tmi you know like please do not tell me this or like why are you telling me this like this is not something i need to know and um and then when i interacted with some of those parents which i did you know obviously the the parents came to visit in college like you know like, like i had interactions with them they definitely did not seem like um my parents. And so I do think there are, for, for certain, not only cultural differences, um, but family differences and all those disposition differences and things like that. And I, I do see this thread too. Um, and I'm always looking for those connections, you know, even if, even if people are different in, in, in terms of Asian American, like what kind of Asian American they are, but class differences too. Um, so many of us are different in terms of class and educational background. I mean, someone like um, Ocean Vuong and I have like a really different background, yet we're both classified as Asian Americans and our parents are totally different. You know, um, my parents were, um, you know, from two different countries even to begin with. And, um, 
and spoke two different languages. And so there are all those sorts of differences. But I think, I mean, I think you're not wrong to see those threads because um, there are, there are, there probably are those threads and it has something to do with the cultural mores and how we communicate. Um, and I have, you know, some Latin X friends and it's totally different too. And, and so it's fascinating to think about those things and how they manifest in, in terms of memory and post-memory. And so much of this book is really um, about silence. And I think that's not by accident. Well, I'm going to insert one more thing before we, we move on to the, the visual art and collage and poetry. But I, I think my favorite part of Dear Memory are the letters to the teachers, um, to your past teachers. I think it's because perhaps being a reader who's a writer, um, seeing all these questions we've discussed so far get employed or the way they inform um, your own questions as a person becoming a writer and then and then engaging with the people who taught you felt so satisfying. So let's um, let's hear a dear teacher letter um, and then we'll move on and have some some real curiosities about the visual part of the book. Um, and I was thinking the one on page 76. Dear teacher, I remember you sitting at the head of our small rectangular table in a classroom where I, along with a motley group of mostly older women, decided to take a writing class. Some of us were new to poetry, but many of us were trying to find a way back to poetry as adults. Poetry was still thousands of miles away though. Despite being in my thirties, I was still learning how to pronounce my own name. Do you know that Lee Young Lee said that a sentence is a unit of identity? A line too is an instance of identity. For me, writing felt like an act of identity making, each word a clavicle, a femur, each sentence an organ. I still remember how excited you seemed the day you told us that your book would be published. At that very moment, I decided that I too wanted to publish a book, just one book of poems in my life. If someone who looked like me could publish a book of poems, then maybe I could do the same. How little I knew at the time that both writing and publishing could be relentlessly unforgiving. During the break, as you lay the little workshop papers down on the ground, got on your hands and knees to sort them, I said, congratulations on your new book. You leaned and bent, white papers and small stacks staring up at me like faces. Thanks, you said. After that, a wind kept blowing in my body. Even when I shut my mouth, the wind kept leaking in. I still remember the joys of my first book. It's true, except in the rarest of circumstances, a first book most likely won't change one's life in immediate external ways. But I know my first book changed me. I never stopped wanting after that. Not only books, but to be surprised again and again by the possible collusions of language. And the more I read, the more I realized how hard writing, well, really was. The more I read, the better I wanted to write. Each book isn't just a book, but a period of a life, a period of learning how to write. Each book has its own hair color, its own glasses, its own favorite mug, its own computer, its own shirt and pants, its own tears. Sometimes I think that writers are too self-absorbed. I often think about what Sylvia Plath wrote. I think writers are the most narcissistic people. Well, I mustn't say this. I like many of them. A great many of my friends are writers. I think writing requires one's full attention, but for me, that attention and obsession is toward language. 
As I write more and more of my cells are replaced by language. When they burn a writer's body, the smoke will be shaped like letters. Sometimes writing can feel like digging holes, planting and replanting things that might never turn into anything. My eyes point down when I'm planting, but the breath of something else is always in my ears. Sometimes that breath is mortality. Other times that breath is history, sometimes memory, sometimes the moon, oftentimes silence. Plath said something like this too. I think that personal experience is very important, but certainly it shouldn't be a kind of shut box and mirror looking narcissistic experience. I believe it should be relevant and relevant to the larger things. Dear teacher, everything you taught me, I took with me. You gave me a flashlight and pointed me to a hole in the ground, but like the best teachers, you didn't tell me what I'd find there. I kept the flashlight and have been wandering in caverns since then. I haven't seen the sun since we met. I live on drips of moisture from the earth. I eat leftover snacks from the pockets of dead writers. Dear teacher, you had us read so much in such a short period of time. I still remember how we talked about Jeanette Winterson in your class and how Winterson wrote that the most powerful written work often masquerades as autobiography, that it offers itself as raw when in fact it is sophisticated, that it presents itself as a kind of diary when really it is an oration. I love when Winterson says that the best work speaks intimately to you, even though it has been consciously made to speak intimately to thousands of others. Now I admire writers who write with an intimate intensity, but also a generous capaciousness. I enjoy reading work that expands while it contracts. Writing made by an instrument with a microscope on one end and a telescope on the other, leaving some powder on the page in the form of language. I've been listening to Victoria Chang read a letter from her latest book, Dear Memory. I love that one so much. And I love, I eat leftover snacks from the pockets of dead writers. That's, that's mm -hmm. so fantastic. Um, so let's, let's spend some time with the images when I, when I think of obit, which is mainly in the obituary form, these obituaries are periodically interspersed with a different form, the tonka. And, and these, form, these tonkas give us not just a different form and a different syntax and a different music, but a different content as they were often about your children. And there's a way it feels like the collages you've made in Dear Memory serve a similar function in this book. We have the letters, which are, are largely, even while being addressed to a specific person, written into the void without expectation of a, of a response and, and sort of liberated from the real person in some way. But the images you are working with to create your collages are concrete things, um, documents, mementos, and photographs from your family. And you've chosen to include at least two modes of writing among the images and only among the images. So we get short poems that are made out of cut out pieces of paper unattached to the images and lying on top them and transcripts from one recorded interview you did with your mother long ago. So it is here outside of the letters that we get the tangible substance that you're engaging with within the silence, whether that's mementos or your, your mother's actual narrative in her own words. So things that she actually spoke, um, 
So talk to us about the images in, in light of this. Yeah, I mean, I wrote all the letters first and um, and that was supposed to be it. You know, I wasn't gonna do it. I, I really wasn't, had no knowledge of what I was doing. I was just writing letters really is, the, is what I was doing. And they just kept on coming. And, um, but then at some point, I felt like what was there on the page was asking me and goes, this goes back to like being a good listener. Um, I'm a really good listener. And so with people, but I think I'm a good listener with, with the things I'm working on too, because I think of them as being their own entities and their own, you know, um, shapes and they're, they're alive. They're, they're, they really are. When you're working on something, I feel like it, it, it is like I have a constant companion and it was telling me that it wanted and needed something else. And um, so I had, you know, slowly just collected all these little small stack of, of things, the photos and things that really resonated with me. And at some point when I had a draft of these letters, I started, you know, putting some photos into them. Um, and, and I think also, First, actually, I should revise what I just said. Um, first, I actually uh, put my mother's transcription because I had remembered after I'd written all these letters, like, wait a minute, I think I talked to her once and, and I couldn't find that interview. Um, but that stemmed from a, a, a card or a letter that she had received from the, a long lost cousin in China. And um, I took that opportunity to sort of record it and ask her more questions and things. And obviously there's a lot of reluctance, um, but I, I finally did find it. It was on my uh, uh, drive and Google drive. And um, I put those in first, but I used, you know, like, like the shapes that you have on word, like rectangles and squares, I put things inside. It was really bad 19, I would say 1990s, 80s clip art. And <laughs> It was so bad. And that's actually what I turned in to Milkweed. And um, Daniel Slager, the editor there, um, wrote me back pretty quickly and said how much he loved the, the manuscript. I was really surprised, actually. And um, but that he had reservations about those clip art thing in the bobs. And um, and he did it in the most gracious, nice way. And that really teaches you how to give constructive feedback. But it did stay with me. And and over time, you know, I started playing with other sorts of things, collaging, and I had asked a visual art artist friend for advice about things along the way. And um, it just, it was a long process. And that's, it was when, within the process of the visual elements is when I, when I thought to myself, this is all junk. And by then it was, you know, the manuscript had been accepted, it was going to be published. And uh, but it was when I started moving into the visual components, I just didn't know how to put it together in a way that would make it feel like it was one thing versus 8,000 things. And I didn't know how to, I mean, think about the problems that we that I had. I had these letters that I had already written. And then I had this interview with my mother that was you know, not super long, but long enough. Like, how do you break that? Should you break it? Do you like, how do you put that into? And then I had all these photos. Um, and then the Dana Levin, the poet at some point had read the whole thing. It was like these photos, like, you know, you, why don't you write some poems 
<laughs> and, and I was like, okay. And again, that's me being sort of like, sure, sure. You know, and so I wrote these poems and then I, and I was pretty proud of myself. I wrote these little poems. I put them in the little boxes and put them up there. But then my visual art friend, Monica Ong was like, no, 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 no. These are speech bubbles. You must not do this. This is really like, you need to tackle this problem first. So it's like, it was like these few people that I had shown this manuscript to were basically telling me that I had all these problems I need to fix. And normally like with Obit or something, I don't send it out to anyone for any opinions until it's like, I feel like it's pretty much done. And this, this manuscript was very different. It needed a lot of help. And so I had, I had to fix things and people were giving me instructions. So in that way, that's how it formed. And even at the end, even after, I think, I think it was, an, uh, yeah, I can't remember who, but they were saying how I have, um, I, I had a lot of insecurities about the, the, the book, even when it was already in production and things like that, because I, I still feel like it's kind of like Frankenstein, you know, um, but some readers have said they found it to be very cohesive, surprisingly, um, and other people have just kind of surprisingly leaned into the complexity of the structure, and they've written things like, you know, structurally complex, and, and it's a great example, actually, of what I tell, like, my students all the time, too, which is, you know, you really, um, you can trust the reader, you can trust them to fill in those gaps on their own. You can, the gap can be quite wide and they can still amazingly figure things out in their own sort of way and interpret it in, in ways that are kind of extraordinary because this book is really motley is what I would say. I, I, I definitely am a reader who thinks it coheres nonetheless. Um, <laughs> well, speaking of gaps, there's, I mean, one of the things we learn in these sections because of your conversation with your mother, I think, is about the gap between your family's life in America and the part of your family that didn't leave. Uh, and so this shadow narrative, the mainly unspoken shadow narrative of your family, um, an alternate life you could have led. I was hoping maybe you could orient us to um, mother's cousin on page 47 and, and, and read, us, read us the words within that image. Sure. So this is mother's cousin speaking, and it was translated from a letter that she had written my mother when she had found my mother. We didn't have food. We ate tree bark, mud. If people had money, they would put a sign on your neck. They would put you on a stage and ask you why you had money. Being poor was not a big deal. But every day, other people would eavesdrop at your windows. Spies were everywhere. They would then send you away or even kill you. All of this was really terrifying. Talk to us about the, the, um, the delivery and the syntax of this for you. Does anything come up? Because stuff comes up for me. I mean, obviously the content, a lot comes up for me, but also the way it's, it's spoken either because of the translation or, or simply because of the person who's speaking it. But does what comes up for you around it? Flatness. Yeah. You know, the diction and the syntax is flat. And I don't have the original. I've looked for it, um, but I don't have it. And 
it's somewhere. I remember seeing it at some point and I, I've lost it because I'm so disorganized. But the um, I, I wonder sometimes if my mother's translation was flat or if the writing itself was flat. I mean, that's something I'll never know unless I find it and actually get it translated or read some of it. I can read some, but not a ton. And so, yeah, I mean, I think with all of the, the translation of the letters is just, there's one where she literally goes through history, 1960 to 1970. It was like, in, in the way my mother read it, if I, and I saw the recording, I remember it was just being very kind of clinical. And it, it's like, I, you know, I was an East Asian studies major in college and even have a master's in Asian studies. And that's the kind of stuff that I studied. Um, and the reason why I didn't, you know, pursue East Asian studies, I realized I was, wasn't really interested in studying it. I was interested in learning about my history. <laughs> so it was all part of the same process that, that came out in Dear Memory. But I do think that, that the language of trauma can be very flat sometimes. And, and therefore, I think, more powerful. In, in your conversation with E.J. Coe, you said something that kind of blew my mind about the images. You, you don't always present the photos of your family as is, but you sometimes cut out and remove a figure or scribble out somebody's face. And in your conversation with EJ, you said that when you replace the actual face in a photograph with a cutout representation where you've replaced their faces with a representation of silence or the unknown that you've both found it comforting and activating for you. And I, I wanted to hear about that, um, how you're confronted with these documents um, with a presence and that you insert uh, an image of your own, which is sort of an erasure in order to engage with them better or more or in a way that works best for you. I mean, it's a form of violence I've done to these poor people in these photos. And I sometimes think about that with Obit too. And I've actually started writing a little bit about that in these new poems I'm working on. It's just like, I've, I've sold my mother's, I've sold my mother. I've sold my grief, you know, um, for public consumption. It's kind of an interesting thing to, to think about. And in writing, and the challenge of writing about these things and having other people receive them is, is that sort of what you're doing is you're cutting, you're cutting people up and, you know, and putting them on display. Um, and it's an active, you know, maybe, maybe I should have done this with my, my own face, not their faces, but it's an, it's sort of an, an, an active of reclaiming, but it's also erasing because one, you don't know what really happened. Um, and then you're, you're, you're overlaying what really happened, I mean, what has really happened anyway, but you're overlaying their stories with, with your trauma and your questions. And so the act of sort of cutting these faces out and felt like a representation of those things, an acknowledgement of what I was doing in some ways um, and shaming myself in some ways for, mm -hmm. for doing that. Um, and, and, but, but acknowledging too that perhaps an understanding of the self is in some ways a, a form of violence on other people and other stories and other histories. You know, it's like if my mother were alive, she'd be so mad at me. And knowing that, 
is 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 something interesting to think about you know and knowing that my mother had to die you know for me to write this book that was so well received is really gross when you think about it and disgusting in some ways um and also really tragic and that I can't share that with her she would have been so proud of me in so many ways in ways that I couldn't care less about you know um in the way that parents love to be proud of their kids you know they love tangible accomplishments, right? Every parent does. And, you know, and she would have been so excited, but the tragic comedy of the whole thing is that I can't share that with her because she's dead, because she's a subject of that book. And in some ways, you know, cutting and changing these photos was a way of maybe acknowledging that I'm changing things, I'm changing history, and I'm probably getting it all wrong, but it's okay because I'm making this thing, a new thing out of it, you know? Um, And some people who are the subject of of things being written about, I think that's where they misunderstand what we're doing as writers. They misunderstand. They think we're trying to tell their story or make them look bad. I think they miss the whole point Mm. of what we're doing. We're making something new. And what comes out of it is no longer, it no longer has anything to do with them. They were just the trigger and now they're gone. Yeah. Well, in light of this, um, Diana Koi Wynn, the author of Ghost Of, she has a question for you. Um, and this is her me reading her question to you. Victoria, thank you for your moving collection of letters and querying across time, space, and generations. I'm struck not only by how the letters, as essays, reach out into the gaps and silences of memory and familial history, but how the letters themselves begin to fill in some of the space in these fissures. Similarly, the tracing of familial bodies in some of the archival photographs reveals a void patched by Chinese characters. In removal, there is not nothingness, but what remains the materials and archives we are left to piece together. As someone who has also been tenderly tracing the lines of familial bodies in photographs, I'm curious to hear what you did with the faces and bodies set free from their photographic contexts. That's a lovely question. And um, yeah, I think... uh, I kept them all, they're in a, in a Ziploc bag. I didn't toss them. And I think, I think she knows this because she's been um, ex, you know, exploring similar kinds of things related to her brother and her family in beautiful ways. Um, and I think she, for her to, you, can, you always know someone who, it's that nuance that, that we were talking about earlier. It's like they understand something a little too well, perhaps, and that they're able to ask these questions that go beyond the question, right? Um, and she wonders where those severed heads are. They're in a little Ziploc bag in the garage, in the box. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to end with you as a, a parent, you parenting your children while your own parents are disappearing is a big part of your last two books. Obit opens with your father's 
frontal lobe dying and the technician ultrasounding your baby in utero, dropping their wand and leaving the room when they can't find your baby's heartbeat. And this this question of what has been passed down from your parents to you and what will be passed down from you to your children is constantly present with lines in Dear Memory like, the sicker father becomes, the more American I become. And maybe my children are already American, but a different kind of American. And maybe my children are not really themselves. There are thousands of years of other people, cultures, my trauma, mother's trauma, father's trauma, their silence passed down through me. I also think about how until recently, you not only didn't call the bullying that happened to you bullying, but that you always told everyone that you had a great childhood. And this impulse feels like it might be a kindred impulse or produce a kindred impulse to the silence your parents raised you in, Uh, a gauzy history where your kids might feel comforted, but also prevented from knowledge. But on the other hand, you're openly questioning how to break the cycle. Um, And I think of when you've quoted Mandelstam, who said, what tense would you choose to live in? I want to live in the imperative of the future passive participle in what ought to be. And you say, that's where I want to live too, in the what ought to be. I don't know where this is or what it looks like, but I know somehow it begins with language. And I think about you cutting out these faces and bodies from the photos, setting them free of their context, as Diana describes, or in your recent Breadloaf talk on joy and poetry, perhaps paradoxically that maybe the loss of self is inherent to joy and that joy is transient because we have to go on living with a self. But I want to, I want to hear about breaking the cycle, breaking the, the impulse to um, say my childhood was fine or um, not using the word bullying, not passing on sort of a a gauzy past to your own children, which um, that anxiety around what's being passed down now multi-generationally through your choices seems really alive in, in both of these books. Absolutely. Yeah. I also feel like I try and model, you know, uh, a, a lack of shame, if that makes sense. So like when Dear Memory came out, I'll um, show my children the book and then I'll give them a copy. They don't have to read it. But one actually was reading it and brought it into class to read during reading time. And um, and, I, and I asked her, I'm like, oh, what, you're reading it, you know? And because they're old enough that they, they have self-determination. Well, I mean, they always have self-determination, right? But the just sort of this idea that um, here's, here are things that I think about and you're welcome to ask me questions about them at any time. You're welcome to read it or not read it. Um, I've, I've actually, um, I'm working through sort of life and things like that through writing um, is important to me. I mean, I don't think there's a week that goes by where I, I say stuff like there's no shame in that. There's no shame, you know, it's, 
It's like you can't you can't help people or you can't fix them or you can't feel better if you don't name it. And so I'm really into naming things and um, acknowledging them and and sort of uh, facing it. You may not solve. I'm very not. I mean, problems cannot be solved in many cases, but I think you can feel better or feel connected or build community um, or have some sort of uh, relationship with the trauma that you're experiencing and things like that, that is more healthy and beneficial than, than sort of tampering it all down or putting a blanket over it. And so I think the way that I was raised and the way I think about my own experiences very much so shapes how I think about my children, but also everything that I do, you know, even the program that I work in at Antioch is very much so I say that at work, no shame, no shame, no mistakes, it's not a big deal, you know. Um, and so I think that, that it's important to me to, to think to, to, you know, and it, there's nothing wrong, again, there's no shame, it's like they did everything they could, and they did a great job. And, but I don't, I don't want to do what they did, because I'm different. And I, I was born in a different place. I, experience things differently. So I now can take all the, the resources and things they gave me and make my own life, you know. Um, there's not a lot of runway left though. I feel like I was a little late in coming coming through to this, this point, but it's a beautiful place to be right now. And I think this book helped me sort of get there. Well, let me ask you, maybe this is a tangent, but um, when, like when you say, maybe my children are not really themselves. And then you say, my trauma, mother's trauma, father's trauma, their silence passed down through me. It made me think of something that I still haven't um, wrapped my brain around, but feels true to me, though I, I haven't seen it reflected elsewhere in what people are studying or talking about. When C.A. Conrad was on the show, they brought up this thing that that I'd never thought about, which was, why do we only talk about negative things being passed down? Like if someone's traumatized, we're, we're talking now in actual science and otherwise, like there's the obviously the behavioral stuff that passes down, but also in epigenetics. Let's say you experience the Irish famine and four generations later, you have a higher risk of diabetes. Um, but I wonder if there's this bias baked in that in terms of how we even are able to see um, about what's passed down. Like, why couldn't, as C.A. Conrad might suggest, something that we solve or, or are really good at experiencing in a delightfully indulgent way be something that gets passed down epigenetically also? I mean, it would seem bizarre that the only things that would be passed down intergenerationally in terms of gene expression would only be bad things. Like that would be really bizarre, right? But nobody's talking about the, the, like what, obviously we could talk. It's not as interesting (laughs) to talk about. It's not as interesting to study. Of course there are things that get passed down. It's, it's, um, I mean, that's, it's almost like that's so obvious that it's like, it's almost, I mean, I don't want to make C. I don't want to criticize C. A. Conrad because I'm not doing that at all. It just feels like it's such an obvious thing. Of course, there are all sorts of genetic traits and things like that that get passed through that are positive. Um, but if you were to think about, like, it doesn't seem obvious to me in the sense of like, of course, there's genetic things, but like with epigenetics, like what you've experienced in your life, 
passing down a different way genes get turned off, off or on, right? So mm-hmm. not just, not the genes themselves, which of course you're going to pass down good and bad traits in the genes, but in terms of gene expression, um, if you became a, a really good listener or you became a really good reader, that that could actually change gene expression. Sure. Like that seems, that seems magical to me. Of course, epigenetics seems magical to me too, but in it general. does. And you know, I think, I think too, it's, you know, the things that keep us awake at night and the things that, that eat away at us or that we think about are oftentimes things like trauma. And I think those are where the, some of the obsessions come out from. And I think it would be interesting to study what you're talking about too, but I, I also feel like the thread might end at some point because I don't know if those, I don't know if those things would keep people awake. And if those things people would, you know, it's like the rabbit holes that we go down are, are because there's more to them. It keeps, it keeps turning into this thread or that thread and this or that. And I think, you know, and, and it's the same reason why it's like, it was hard to find poems of pure joy to talk about for my bread love talk. Um, it's hard to write purely funny poems. And I just think it's like the thread just sort of ends sometimes. And with trauma, it's like, it never ends. <laughs> um, and, and it's not that the thread of joy ends or the thread of whatever, you know, some other thing we're talking about being a great reader or something ends. It's just not as interesting to, it doesn't tangle, I think, as much mm. in interesting ways. And therefore I think it might not be as interesting to study, but I think, and even if you were to study that, you would study it and be like, uh, here's, here's the evidence, there you go. And then what, right. you know, um, whereas with trauma, I think the then what is where, the then what is where art is made. Right. You know? Can we end with a dear daughter letter? Sure. You're amazing though, by the way, with all the research that you do, Thank you. you're like in this interview or this reading, it's like, ah. <gasps> Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You've well, like looked at, a, done a lot of research. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's at least my aspiration is to make the show distinctive in that way. Right. Long form, um, deep, in depth, nuance, all the things that um, our cultures isn't really always celebrating right now. Um, and also staying attentive to the text. Cause I think you mm-hmm. can have an in-depth conversation with a writer that floats above the text. Totally. Like, I actually am that person. Yeah. I like, I like to float above things. Cause, um, yeah, I think it's easier and I, you know, it's like pontificate about all sorts of things and I can get, go off on all sorts of tangents, but you do a really good job of getting like, like here, look, look at this word kind of thing. Yeah. There's also just a, a lot of good, really good podcasts that are conversational that float above the text. And I'm not saying that as a criticism of them, I enjoy them. So it's like, but I don't know that I want to add another one like that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. You know, someone who likes to write criticism, it's, it's that same impulse. It's like going a little more deeply and into things and thinking about things and in, in a more in-depth way at the word level, but then bringing it out and then seeing sort of the context in which the book sits too. It's like this macro micro kind of thing and going back and forth. I did love your, um, 
reviews and conversation. Mm, those are fun. The Douglas Kearney and the Arthur Z and the um, yeah. Jory Graham. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jory Graham. Yeah. I don't know if you've listened to the conversation with Jory Graham on the show, but I have listened to some of it. It's... I didn't listen to all of it, but I did listen to some of it. She's the best. She is the best. She is the best. Yeah. Or she's one of my best. For sure. She's one of my best. She's yeah. actually probably my favorite living poet. I've been saying that. Yeah, often. she might be um, mine. Mm-hmm, I love her poetry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In her brain. Yes. Okay, I'll read Dear Daughter. Dear Daughter, what I didn't tell you is that I sat in the front row of the reading, ready to smile and to give a good introduction like a good host. What I didn't tell you is that when the reader had a white character call an Asian American one a squinty-eyed, feckless cunt. I remembered all the times when others took their fingers and pulled their eyes wide into a horizon. All the times people yelled chink to my family or me. The time someone wrote chink on our driveway in chalk. What I didn't tell you is that the reader intimidated me with his confidence, that my mother never taught me how to speak to white people, to loud white people, shake the hands of confident white people, speak in front of white people at a lectern with a white piece of paper with black type on it. What I didn't tell you is that I envied Joan Didion, not only for her writing, but also because she had things passed down to her, that she knew what her great, 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 great grandparents did. I identified more with Nora Krug, when she wrote, in my mind, a family began with one's parents and ended with oneself. What I didn't tell you is that after the reader's comment, I wondered if I should have gotten up and gone to the bathroom, whether I should have cried in the bathroom. I wondered how to fight my urge to take the microphone away from him. Instead, I stared at my dark Taiwanese hands from father, my long, thin northern Chinese hands from mother. I was furious at my hands, at myself, at my history, at my inability to do anything with those hands. I was upset that my mother and father didn't spray the chalk off our driveway, instead waiting for the sun to erase it. Not erased, the word etched into my skin. What I didn't tell you is that I got up to introduce another poet I had been looking forward to meeting, and then I sat down. My hands illuminated atop the lectern, white for just a few seconds, then brown again. Dear daughter, I did tell you what happened, and it was only after I had told you, after you had gone to bed, that I wonder if I had wrongly passed my pain onto you, wrongly wept my tears into your body. I wondered if you suffer like I do in school, on the playground, in class, with your teachers, looking at ads, watching TV, or do you not suffer like I do? You're born in a more diverse and progressive state. You're half Asian and half white. Does that mean you experience half the racism, that you feel half the pain? Or alongside your own pain, do you inherit all of your grandmother's pain, my pain, America's pain? I thought hard about whether to stay silent, about whether to tell you. Staying silent was following in my mother's footsteps. But by telling you, I risked adversely shaping your views of the world as an unfair one, as a racist one, as one where we would be victims. I've since thought harder about why I was so upset. The racial slur had been dropped into a piece with no apparent purpose and thus never transcended its own racism. In that way, the randomness of the slur was affirming the slur itself, as well as negative stereotypes of Asian American women. I could tell you more about the aftermath and the response of the writer and his friend, but then I'd have to relive those dreadful experiences. Do you remember the boy on the patio, how he pulled his eyes wide at us and suddenly the same thin line? Do you remember what I said to the boy? You don't want to make fun of people for what they look like, right? 
The boy, maybe 10, a friend's child, someone you had played with many times before just laughed. Do you know how hard it was for me to speak up even to a 10 year old? Do you know how astonished I was that so much had changed, but so much hadn't? If I don't know how to protect myself, how can I protect you? I know that even though I was born on this land in a small hospital in Detroit, Michigan, that my son is still brittle. That if my son even exists, it is behind all the other sons and emits radio static. I promise not to pass handfuls of hate into your hands. I promise to teach you how to be the bird and the beak and the sky with many other birds. The next morning we ate breakfast, got you ready for camp, ignored the loud hawk that circled above the cabin. When I grabbed my computer bag and opened the front door, a bright white triangular light blinded us and we moved through it. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Victoria. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. We're talking today to Victoria Chang about her latest book, Dear Memory, Letters on Writing, Silence, and Grief from Milkweed. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Victoria Chang's work can be found at victoriachangpoet.com. For the bonus audio, Victoria reads from her upcoming collection, The Trees Witness Everything, a collection of tiny poems that were constructed using visual constraints, formal constraints, and titles from W.S. Merwin poems. We discuss all of this as part of this supplemental recording. This joins bonus audio from Jory Graham, Natalie Diaz, Alice Oswald, Rosemary Waldrop, Ted Chang, Ross Gay, Laylee Long Soldier, Arthur Z, N.K. Jemison, and many others. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. And finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>